during the reigns of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or conquered. It will crush all these kingdoms into nothingness, and God's kingdom will stand forever. Welcome to the end. The book of Ecclesiastes ends with two of the most unpopular verses in the entire Bible. It says this, Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. For God shall bring every work into judgment with every secret thing, whether it is good or whether it is evil. I don't know about you, I don't like being judged. And how many times have you heard someone say, don't judge me? Or how many times have you felt like, don't judge me? And yet the Bible says that God will judge everybody. In fact, God will judge everything that we do. And that can be a little bit intimidating if you don't know what the judgment is about and how the judgment works. So to begin this study, we're going to go to Daniel chapter 7. And here we're going to find the judgment scene taking place in heaven. And in verse 9, it says this, I beheld or I saw till thrones were were cast down or set in place, and the Ancient of Days sat. His garment was white as snow, the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like the fiery flame and his wheels as burning fire. What a dramatic picture we are seeing right here. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. Thousand, thousands ministered unto him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The judgment was set. And the books were opened. Here we are introduced to the judgment scene taking place in heaven. It continues on in verse 13, we find somebody else who arrives. You see, in verse 9, we have thrones that are set in place. The Bible describes the Ancient of Days, God the Father coming in and sitting and taking His place. But there's more than one throne right there. Then the Bible describes the thousands and thousands of those who are in attendance. But who else sits on those thrones? In verse 13, I saw in the night visions and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days. They brought him near before him. There was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom that which shall not be destroyed. When we read about the judgment scene, we find that the judgment is taking place in heaven. It's taking place in front of the assembled multitudes of the universe. We find that the father comes in and sits on his throne. And when everything is set up, then Jesus comes in and sits down beside the Father and the judgment takes place. Why does the judgment take place in heaven? How does it actually work? What is the process here and why is the judgment so good for you and I? Judgment is usually one of those things that we try and avoid. But you don't want to try and avoid this one. In Daniel chapter 8, we have the parallel verses to this judgment description in Daniel chapter 7. And so in Daniel chapter 7, you have the sequence of Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, divided nations, 
and then the judgment and then the second coming. In Daniel chapter 8, the sequence goes, sequence goes Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, divided nations, and then the cleansing of the sanctuary. It is the cleansing of the sanctuary that is going to explain to us what the judgment is all about and how the judgment works. We can read about it in Daniel 8 here in verse 14 where it says, He said unto me, Under 2,300 days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now in another presentation, we discuss the time period. We talk about when the 2,300 days begins and when it ends. We even find out when the judgment begins. But what is this cleansing of the sanctuary? And why is it so critical to us understanding the judgment? Well, to answer that question, we're going to need to study the sanctuary. And in Exodus chapter 25, Exodus 25, and once again, we do reference this more than once, but it's important that we notice what the Bible says. We find a description for one of the reasons that God gave for building the sanctuary in the first place. What was the purpose of the sanctuary? In Exodus chapter 25 and verse 8, it says, Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may live amongst them. There was something that was separating God from his people, something that was stopping God from being able to live amongst his people, and it wasn't the need for God to have a roof over his head. Why don't you hold your finger there if you're following along in your Bible. And we're going to go over to the book of Isaiah. And here in Isaiah chapter 59 and verse 1, the Bible says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, neither his ear heavy, so he can't hear you. So what's the problem? Verse 2, Your iniquities, your sins have separated between you and your God. Your sins have hid his face from you so that he will not hear. There is something that is separating us from God and that which is separating us from God is sin. We're going to find that the sanctuary is going to teach us how God gets rid of sin. But more than that, the sanctuary is going to teach us how God deals with the problem of evil in our world and the wicked. How the judgment takes place. And Asaph speaks about it in Psalms chapter 73. And right here in verse 16, he says, When I thought to understand, he's speaking about the prosperity of the wicked. When he couldn't understand this, it was painful for me. He says, until I went into the sanctuary and then I understood their end. If we're going to understand the judgment, we need to look into the sanctuary. Because here we have a picture, an illustration of how God deals with sin and how God deals with judgment because God describes the judgment as the cleansing, the cleaning of his sanctuary. So let's go back to the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus is one of those books I don't know about you. The first time I was reading the Bible, I got started in Genesis, and Genesis was great, really thoroughly enjoyed Genesis. Then I headed into Exodus, enjoyed that as well. One or two hard places there that I struggled with a little bit. And then I hit Leviticus, and oh my, I was really lost. What is all this about? You see, Leviticus is a book that's full of detail and it feels really, really dry until you look below the surface and you suddenly realize that this book is all about Jesus Christ.
And in Leviticus chapter 4, you're going to find a description of the sin offering. And we're going to summarize that sin offering uh, just to I'll help us understand how God deals with the sin problem here today. It works a little bit like this, and all of the detail is here in the chapter. I'm going to summarize it for you. Let's say that you were a person living in the camp of Israel in the time of Moses. And let's say that you sin. Well, the very first thing that you need to do if you've sinned is to go outside the camp of Israel because that's where all of the flocks and herds of Israel are. Now, of course, they had no fences in those days. And so how are you going to find, say, your sheep compared to somebody else's sheep? Well, the answer is quite simple. You would call them by name. And when you call them by name, they're going to come running. And your job in going out there is to find the very best one you have, your favorite lamb. Now, let's put this into a little bit of context that we can relate to. I want you to think about what it takes to raise a sheep so that it will come when you call it by its name. You see, I did that when I was a child. I had a pet lamb called Zipper. And that pet lamb was a sheep that I raised from birth. I would feed it its bottle. I can't remember how many times a day, but I do remember getting up through the night to give Zipper, you know, her bottle. And she thought that I was her mother. And Zipper would follow me anywhere I went. And she was the most wonderful. She was the sweetest little pet that you can imagine. I go anywhere on the farm and I look down, you know, and here's Zipper right beside me, like, eh. just following me around, seeing what I was doing, trying to understand, nibbling a bit of grass. You know, if I sat down, she'd nibble on my hair. The only way that you can have a sheep that comes when you call it by name is if you raise it as a pet. And my guess is that most of you don't have a pet lamb. But many of you will have a pet. Imagine if this, rather than being a random sheep in the paddock that we're talking about, was your pet. You've sinned. You go and call your pet. Your pet comes running, so happy to see you. And then you start to lead your pet through the camp of Israel. And it's wandering along like, oh, this is interesting. Look at all of these tents. Look at all of these people. Wondering what is happening. And you're leading it towards its death. Now, of course, as you're walking through the camp of Israel, it's kind of obvious why you're taking a lamb. You can imagine people standing in the doors of the tents and going, Oh, I wonder what, I wonder what he did. There's an illustration there, isn't there? There's no hiding our sin from God. Then there's a wide open space before you come to the sanctuary. And now there's really no hiding your sin. You're a sinner in need of forgiveness. But you're going to the temple where you can find that forgiveness. And as you walk through the door of the sanctuary into the courtyard, you are now surrounded by a white fence. That white is a symbol of the righteousness of Christ. Now the whole camp of Israel, they can't see your sin. Why? Because you are surrounded by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. You have come to a place where you're going to find forgiveness and cleansing for your sin. The Bible goes on to describe how you will place your hands over the head of that lamb and confess your sins over the head of that lamb. 
And symbolically, the sin is being transferred from you to the lamb. Now, when that happens, what has to happen to the lamb? The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. Once the sin has been transferred from you to the lamb, there is no way that that lamb can survive. It must die. And it must die at your hand. At that point, you have to take a knife. And once again, you may not have, you may not have a pet lamb at home. But imagine if you had to do this to your favorite pet. Take a knife. Hold that sweet, innocent creature down. Cut its throat and hold it while it bleeds to death. It's truly horrific. And when you read it through here in Leviticus, you don't really pick up the true horror of what it is that is taking place. And when we sin today, we often don't think of the true horror of our sin. But sin brings death, and sin is horrific. God was trying to illustrate to his people that sin was not a minor thing, not something that you just play around with, not something that you trifle with. Well, then having done so, you will catch some of the blood from that lamb in a bowl. Give it to the priest. And the priest would take that blood into the sanctuary. Now, the sanctuary has three parts. There is a courtyard around the outside. Then there is a holy place. And then there is a most holy place. There is a curtain that divides between the holy place and the most holy place. And the priest would take that blood and sprinkle it on the curtain that divides between the two places. On the floor in front of the curtain and on the four horns of the golden altar that is right there in front of the curtain. Behind that curtain was the visible presence of God himself. And then the priest would leave. And you would leave also. And symbolically what was taking place was very simple. Your sin was being transferred from you to the lamb, to the blood, and to the holy place. And so when you walk out of the sanctuary, none of that sin is on you. You walk away scot-free. And the reason that you do so is because your pet lamb died. Your lamb that did nothing wrong and never deserved to die. And that's why the Bible describes Jesus. John the Baptist described Jesus as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Because that lamb is a symbol of Jesus Christ who would die for our sins. But that's only part of the story. You've got to have gone back to the camp of Israel and never, ever again Will that sin have any relevance to you whatsoever at all? It is gone from you forever. But as that blood is building up each day, as people confess their sins, what do you think is going to happen? Well, from a very practical perspective, it's not going to smell very nice, is it? In fact, it's going to produce a horrible stench within the most beautiful building on earth. So why would you allow that? Well, simply, the stench of that blood becomes a symbol 
of how sin stinks to God. You see, it reeks of death. And God hates sin because sin brings death. And God's purpose is to get rid of sin. And to get rid of sin in such a way that it will never ever come back. And that's the whole purpose of the judgment. We're going to talk more about that in just a moment. We haven't finished here in Leviticus. Because once a year, they had a service called the cleansing of the sanctuary. Jewish people today call it Yom Kippur or a day of judgment. Because that's what it was. And if we go over to Leviticus chapter 16, we find it described over here. Leviticus chapter 16. And on this day, rather than bringing a lamb, the high priest would bring two goats. The Bible says in verse 7, He shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron, that's the high priest, will cast lots over the two goats, one lot for the Lord and the other lot for the scapegoat or Azazel or Satan. So very simply, we could see two goats being brought to the sanctuary. Casting lots was a little bit like you know, flipping a coin that we do today, and one goat is going to be for God, and one goat is going to be for Satan. If we go on a little bit further through the passage, we find it is the Lord's goat that is killed and dies. We find that here in verse 15, the Bible says, Then he will kill the goat of the sin offering that is for the people, and bring his blood within the vial. When the Bible says within the vial, the Bible is talking about that most holy place in the sanctuary where the visible presence of God is. And this was the only time of the year that the high priest could ever go there. And he would bring it all the way in. And the Bible says, and, and uh, do with that blood as he did with the blood of the bullock and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the lid of the Ark of the Covenant. This was the only piece of furniture in the most holy place. And this is what contained the law of God. And so now we have this picture. Above the mercy seat is the visible presence of God. Below the mercy seat is the law that we have broken and condemns us to death. But coming between the law that condemns us to death and God is the blood of Jesus Christ. So when God looks down to see the law that we have broken, instead of seeing the law that we have broken, he sees the blood of Jesus Christ. What a wonderful picture of redemption we are given in the sanctuary service. The Bible goes on in verse 16 and it says, And he shall make an atonement. The word atonement simply means an at-one-ment. A cleansing for, and this is critical, the holy place. With the sin offering, cleansing was made for the individual who had sinned. And his sins are going into the holy place every day that sins are being confessed. On this day, the holy place itself is cleansed. And when this goat is sacrificed, there is no sin that is in the holy place whatsoever at all. This is fantastic. Because right now, I wouldn't want you to read the record of my life. There are a whole bunch of things in there that I am terribly ashamed of because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But there's coming a time in the future when you're welcome to read the story of my life because the Bible says that the judgment cleanses the record of sin. 
And there's coming a time when you can read the record of my life. And as you open it up, all that you will see recorded in those records are the righteous things that Jesus did through me. One day I'm going to be very proud of that book. Right now, not so much. So how does this actually act as a work of judgment then? Well, I want you to think about it as two people. Person number one, person number two. Person number one does some sins during the year. And person number one brings a lamb and sacrifices the lamb. And so all of his sins are in the sanctuary. And so person number one, when the cleansing of the sanctuary happens, the day of atonement or the day of judgment happens, there are no sins on him. All of his sins have been given to Jesus Christ and they are in the sanctuary. Person number two has done some sins during the year as well. And he's gone, yeah, you know what? I kind of like my sins. I'm going to hang on to them. And rather than confessing his sins, he's kept his sins. All of his sins on the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary, the judgment, are on him. So here you have two people. With this person, there's no record of sin with this person. With this person, there is a record of sin because this person has not asked for forgiveness. Very simply, the cleansing of the sanctuary divides between those who have confessed their sins and those who have not confessed their sins. In other words, it's a division between the righteous and the wicked, because that is how they are divided between each other. And so here we have a picture, an object lesson of God's judgment. Now, of course, we can continue on here in Hebrews chapter 8, because we ask ourselves the question, well, that was what used to happen back in ancient Israel. How does that relate to us today? Particularly that prophecy in the book of Daniel that says that the judgment will take some, take place sometime in the future. Well, if we go over to Hebrews chapter 8, we find out exactly why it is relevant. Hebrews chapter 8, we'll begin reading in verse 1. The Bible says, now the things which we have spoken, this is the summary, we have a high priest who is sitting on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord pitched, and not man. Here we are introduced to another temple. Different from the temple that is on earth, this temple is in heaven. And this temple is a temple built by God himself, a temple where Jesus ministers for us and where the judgment will take place. The Bible says in verse 5 that uh, that this, the priests on earth serve unto the example and shadow of heavenly things. As Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle, for see, said he, that you make all things according to the pattern showed to you in the mount. There is a great temple in heaven, and that great temple in heaven is where the judgment takes place. So we see a mechanism here for the judgment. We know where it takes place, but we have to ask ourselves the question, what is the purpose of the judgment? If I have given my life to Jesus Christ and I'm experiencing salvation, why would God judge me? Doesn't God already know who's saved and who's lost? Why does the Bible speak about a judgment? Why does the Bible speak about books of record being opened and people's the story of people's lives being read? Well, the answer is that, yes, 
very, very clearly, God does know who's saved and who's lost because God, unlike anyone else in the universe, can read the human heart. He knows where we are at. But the question arises, what about the rest of the universe? Our world, the Bible says, is a spectacle to the universe that is looking on. And let's say that God, you know, he returns to this earth, he brings the world to an end. Some people are saved and some people are lost. And let's say someone who's lost, who the whole universe kind of thought they were pretty much the most righteous person on the planet. And so they come to God and it's like, well, what's, what's this all about? Why was this person lost? And God's like, trust me, their, their heart wasn't right with me. The slightest seed of doubt, if it is presented to a group of people within the universe who have the power of choice, given the context of eternity somewhere, it will germinate. And if God leaves any doubt to his justice, his mercy, and his love anywhere in the universe, then sooner or later sin is going to have to come back again. And if sin comes back again, then the whole process of the problem of this planet will be repeated. And because God doesn't want to have sin to come back again, the Bible describes the judgment taking place in open court, in heaven, in front of the assembled multitudes of the universe where God opens up the books of record and says, see, here is somebody. And within their record, all that is written are the righteous things that I did through them. They can be saved. Here is somebody who has refused to confess their sins and turn to me. And the entire universe sees that God is just, God is righteous, and God is all-loving and all-merciful. There's not a seed or shred of doubt anywhere. The reason that that is important is because God will never take away the power of choice. There is always the opportunity of sin. Because if God took away the power of choice, love would cease to exist. And so God will never take away that power of choice because he wants love to reign supreme. But at the same time, he never wants sin to come back again. So he's going to remove all doubt. You know, the great thing about the story of the judgment is that it doesn't end here. You see, the Bible talks about thousand years after Jesus comes back. And in Revelation chapter 20, the Bible speaks about another judgment. You see, there is a problem with the judgment that takes place in heaven. It has to take place before Jesus can come back. Because when Jesus comes back, the Bible says he brings his reward with him. The decision has already been made as to who's saved and who's lost. You can't take some people to heaven and condemn others and then say, oh, okay, let's sit down and have a judgment about it now. But when that judgment takes place, none of us are there. So what about us? We are going to live for eternity as well. What will God do? Will God remove our power of choice to stop us from ever being able to sin again? No. If God did that, love would be eradicated from the human race. Power of choice only exists. Love only exists where the power of choice exists. Bible says in Revelation 20 verse 4, describing that thousand year period, it says, I saw thrones and they sat upon them and judgment was given to them. Well, who's that? 
I saw the souls of those that were beheaded for the witness of Jesus and the word of God, which had not worshipped the beast, neither his image, neither had received his mark in their foreheads or their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ a thousand years. That's human beings involved in a process of judgment there for a thousand years. What does God do? He opens the books of record. And he says, okay, you might be wondering, you know, where is this person? Where is that person? Why aren't they here? You might be doubting somewhere in your deepest recesses of your soul by justice, mercy and love. Here's the books of record. And this is why I've made the decisions that I have made. And so God doesn't keep it away from the human race either. And then finally you come down to the end of Revelation chapter 20. And there is another judgment. The Bible says that the wicked are raised back to life. This is God's final act in the judgment. He raises every human being to life so that every human being who has ever lived is alive in one place at one time. And he opens the books of record one last time. And now it is the turn of the wicked. It's like, okay, if you have something to say for yourself, if you want to mount a defense, speak now. Here is the record. The Bible says that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. And when the wicked bow and confess that God is righteous, God is merciful, God is just, and they acknowledge that God's decisions are all perfect, it is the final act in removing any doubt from the universe. You see, friends, the purpose of the judgment is to guarantee that the power of choice will remain. That guarantees that love will remain. And through a process of open court, God guarantees that sin will never come back again. No one is going to have any doubts as to the justice and the mercy of God. Now, one more thing I'm going to share with you, which is truly amazing about the judgment. You might be wondering, well, who is our judge? The Bible tells us exactly who our judge is. And in the Gospel of John chapter 5, John chapter 5 and verse 22, the Bible says, For the Father judges no man, but has committed all judgment to the Son. That's good news. The Bible says that Jesus is our judge. Why is that good news? Well, it's good news for me because he's my best friend. If I'm going into a court case and I've got my best friend as the judge, I'm going in with a whole lot of confidence. It gets better. If you go over to 1 John now, that's the first letter of John down near Revelation, you're going to find something else that John says about the judgment because in that judgment you have a defense lawyer to stand in your defense. It says, my little children, these things I write to you so that you don't sin. And if anyone does sin, we have an advocate, a defense lawyer with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. You see, friends, when I look at this judgment and I find that Jesus is my judge, the person who is judging me is the person who loved me so much he gave his life for me. And I find that the judge is my best friend and then I find that my defense lawyer is the same person as my best friend. I find that this judgment has been entirely rigged in my favor. I find that we are serving a God who is doing everything he can to get us into heaven. And that's good news. Now, friends, the question for us today is very simple. There's a judgment taking place. It is happening right now. We've got two ways that we can approach that judgment. We can approach that judgment with Jesus as our best friend. And we can say, Jesus, 
please be my judge and please be my defense. Or we can cut ourselves off from Jesus and say, no, I'm going to represent myself in the judgment. Now, which way do you think is going to have a better outcome? I want to encourage you today to choose Jesus as your best friend, your judge and your defense in that court case. Give your whole court case over to Jesus. Hand him all of your sins. He can make them go away through his blood. Choose Jesus. You will never regret that decision. Won't you make a decision right now for Jesus Christ? You've been listening to The End. For more information about this program or any of this show's free offers, visit www.theend.digital.